Mark chapter 1. The, uh, the pace of Mark, as you'll notice, uh, we're covering in Mark 1 what Matthew covers in his third chapter. So it shows a little bit about how uh, Mar- Matthew thinks some things are important that Mark wasn't really concerned about. So we're verses 9 through 11 this morning. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, as our prophet speak truth to us, Reveal our need for salvation as well as your plan of salvation to us. As our priest, comfort those who are guilty or afflicted through your sacrifice for us, through your intercession for us. Jesus, as our King, lead us, protect us, and discipline us according to our need. And we ask that you would be doing this through the power of the Spirit as your word is heard and preached this morning. Amen. Jake and Elwood Blues were not people that you would typically think of as being on a mission from God. And yet they were, at least in their own minds, on a mission from God. And the fact of that mission or the fact of their thinking they were on a mission shaped that which they did. Now, they went through some wild escapades in the process of fulfilling that mission, but nothing stopped them from seeking to save the orphanage in which they were raised because they were convinced we're on a mission from God. That sense of mission is intended to shape how people live. It's, it's not just something that makes you feel good about yourself, but is intended to flow through all of your life uh, to shape your decisions and your actions. And we'll see that, uh, of course, John the Baptist believed he was on a mission. And so John the Baptist, was, or John the Baptizer, as I prefer to call him, uh, was out there in the wilderness by the Jordan River baptizing people with this baptism of repentance. And that's where we pick up on this story of the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. It takes an interesting little turn because we now see that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And if we go to our map, we see that Jerusalem, kind of way down here, uh, we see that John is probably baptizing people just north of the Dead Sea, and Nazareth is way up there, okay, during this, uh, this not-so-great part of the country called Galilee. Uh, it's probably the place you didn't want to be from, and you particularly didn't want to be from Nazareth. Uh, and he had to travel all the way down, remember? You walked, maybe you rode a, you rode a donkey if you had one. Uh, Jesus, being a carpenter, 
probably didn't have uh, something like that. He would have been walking it. And so uh, we see probably a three to four day journey from Nazareth in the highlands all the way down to the Jordan River where he is going to be baptized. We, we recognize the uncomfortable nature of Nazareth. Okay? In John's Gospel, we have the account of Nathaniel uh, being, heard, being told that his, you know, his friend has found the Messiah, and he goes, Nazareth? Could anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was not a place that anything good came from. It was not an important city. Uh, it was not a, a well-liked city, but it was, in fact, probably one that no one wanted to be from. I was curious about that, and so I had Amy Google places of no repute, basically, in Arizona. Because <laughs> she couldn't come up with one off the top of her head, neither could I. And, but apparently there are people from Apache Junction who don't want you to know that they come from Apache Junction. Uh, that there's such a mess in, a, in that part of the state uh, that they're afraid to say that they're from Apache Junction. Because they think they might be lumped in with the drug, a- drug addicts and the other problems that are there. And so uh, Nazareth was sort of the Apache Junction of Galilee uh, and Jerusalem, uh, not Jerusalem, but Judea, the place you didn't necessarily want to be from. This stands really in contrast, remember we've already talked about uh, the inscription, about the, um, the good news, the beginning of the good news of Caesar Augustus. Well, the beginning of his good news, we're not sure if it starts in Rome where he was adopted by Julius Caesar or if it uh, would start on the battlefields of Philippi uh, where he and Antony defeated the forces of Brutus and Cassius um, or if it was the battlefield of Actium where he defeated Antony and Cleopatra. Okay, This is when he was still known as Octavian. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on, uh, but uh, the Caesar has this robust story of important places in the history of the Roman Empire, uh, but Jesus comes from Nazareth, a very unimpressive sort of place. But Jesus did travel southeast for the three to four days in order to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Um, there's more that's going on than Mark tells us about. Okay? Mark is uh, really focused on moving the action forward. He's not as concerned with the things that Matthew or even John are concerned about. For instance, uh, John uh, lets us know that John the Baptist specifically was baptizing people in order to reveal the Messiah to the people, particularly the repentant people. We see this in John 1, verse 31. I didn't know who he was, basically, and for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And so part of his mission in preparing the way of the Lord was also to reveal the Lord to Israel so that they might then begin to follow him. We see in Matthew's gospel, which was read for us this morning, uh, that John initially did not want to baptize Jesus He thought that Jesus should rather be baptizing him because he recognized that why should I, the lesser, be baptizing you, the greater? And yet Jesus says that he wanted to fulfill 
all righteousness. And so there was more going on here than John the baptizer recognized. It's more than many of what the Pharisees and the priests recognized as well, that John's baptism was not simply the baptism of men, but it was, in fact, commanded by God. And as the Messiah, Jesus must be obedient to God and therefore receive this baptism of John's. Jesus, though not a sinner himself, is going to be baptized with this baptism for repentance in order to identify with sinners whose sin he would soon bear. And so uh, Jesus is introduced to us in this way as something of a substitute. The one who's going to stand in the place of sinners, he's going to represent, but right now he's identifying with them though he himself is not one of them. Jesus leaves Nazareth and goes into the wilderness, in a sense, to begin a brand new exodus, a new return from a far country. He's going to lead these people that God has called to the wilderness, who he's called in repentance, and he's going to lead them into a new place with God. Jesus calls us to follow him, to identify with him, to receive him by faith as our representative before God. He does not represent everybody, but he represents those who will believe in him. And so there's a lot more going out in the wilderness than we notice at first glance. Just as he identifies with us, he calls us to identify with him, but in a very different way. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, who actually grew up as a disciple of Polycarp in Ephesus, uh, tells us that Jesus became fully human in order to restore all that sin has corrupted. He says, that which is not assumed may not be healed. And so in order for Jesus to heal or restore full humanity, Jesus has assumed to himself full humanity. Jesus fully identifies with us so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be restored, so that we can be healed of all that sin has corrupted. And so... He fully identifies with us. And then he calls us to identify with him by faith to receive all that he does for us. And so he identifies with us in order that he might save us, and we identify with him in order that he may save us. (laughs) We are merely the recipients. We are merely the beneficiaries of what he does when we identify with him by faith. But what's really important here as we think about Irenaeus and that idea of of Jesus must be fully human is is that Jesus intends to make us fully human. Uh, Sometimes, uh, I saw a couple of eyes go, that's all right. 
one of the things that sin has done is made us less than fully human because it has twisted and tarnished the image of God, okay? which is what makes us fully human. And so we, because of sin and its mastery over us, have become less than human. We've become, in some ways, like beasts, like animals, following our instinct, our, our understanding darkened, and other aspects of sin that we see in Scripture. And so what Jesus is coming to do is to restore us in God's image, which means he's going to make us fully human, really human. Now that's very important, because there are many who think that somehow if they follow Jesus, they'll become somehow less than human, because there are perhaps certain experiences or activities that they will not be able to participate in, which they mistakenly think make them human, as opposed to reflecting the fullness of the glory of God as we were intended. And so Jesus comes to restore humanity, not destroy humanity. That Jesus comes to make you more fully human and aware. He's coming to form, as we see in Ephesians 2, a new humanity out of Jew and Gentile. A humanity that is given over to God as it was originally intended. And so in this baptism, uh, we see that Jesus identifies uh, with sinners that he saves. That's part of what's going on here. But Jesus' baptism wasn't like the rest of the baptisms that John performs here by the River Jordan. So it's a good thing for us to ask, how was this baptism different? Well, we see the difference when he comes out of the water. Now, let's pause for a second. Does this mean after he was immersed and arose from the water, as some think? Or does this mean um, simply that when he came out of the river, as others think? Not going to get bogged down in that. I want to remind you of an old commercial. The commercial for the Tootsie Pop. How many licks does it take to the, get to the center of the Tootsie Pop? And the boy asks the owl, and the owl goes, a one, as he licks, two, three, and then he bites and says, the world may never know. I don't want to spend time arguing over whether Jesus was immersed. That's not the point of this passage. Okay. What really is the point is what happened next. What matters is this, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. John saw this. Jesus may have seen this too. Uh, what we recognize is that um, in John's gospel, it says that John saw this. He bears testimony about seeing this take place. This idea of the heavens being torn apart or being rended is used for a theophany. It's used for the, a great revelation is about to take place. It's not the attack of the Cree as from uh, 
the first Avenger movie, okay? But, that, but that's sort of the idea. Is heaven has opened up. There's this portal in the sky. And in, instead of the Cree coming out, here comes heaven. Heaven breaks loose upon the earth. We see hints of this in Isaiah 64, for instance. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And John is here testifying that he sees God rending the heavens. We see similar thing in Revelation chapter 4, amongst other places, where it talks about... Um, there was a window or a portal into heaven. The heavens opened, and we see a shift in the revelation that is being given to John on the Isle of Patmos. This word, this word is also used at the end of the book of Matthew, sorry, uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's used at the point of Jesus' death because the temple veil or curtain is torn or rent apart. And so this word kind of forms almost an inclusio or bookends of this entire gospel. There's a rending of heaven at the beginning, and there's a rending of the temple curtain at the end. God is tearing things down for our benefit and the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. So, what happens when heaven opens? Well, the first thing that John notices is that the Spirit descends upon him or Jesus like a dove. Now, there are a few things that are likely going on here. Some people have uh, counted up the number of interpretations as 16. I have not studied all of these 16. I don't care about all of these 16. Um, but I think that there are some that are, are clear the dove really is meant to remind us. There's a reason why the Spirit is descending as a dove. We see the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit is hovering over the waters, much like a dove or a bird would hover over the waters. We see the dove is significant within the whole Noah story, which is in a sense a recreation as God in judgment had wiped out the earth and was beginning again with Noah and his family. And there we see a dove. Mark wants this to be in our minds because what is happening here is the new creation is beginning in the work of Jesus. And here is the Spirit hovering and descending and resting upon Jesus. And so one aspect of this is the new creation is beginning. Another aspect of this is that Jesus also being anointed with the Spirit as prophet, priest, and king were anointed. The anointing was with oil was intended to represent, uh, to signify the anointing with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is being anointed with the Holy Spirit in order to perform his earthly ministry. He's being commissioned for this mission. And so we have that scene in a church in the Blues Brothers where all of this stuff is going on around them and the, and the people are singing and the people are dancing and the Blues Brothers, uh, Jake and Elwood, are just kind of standing there taking it all in. And then one of the things that happens is 
the light shines through that stained glass and rests upon Jake. And the pastor, played by James Brown, is, Do you see the light? Do you see the light? And finally it dawns upon Jake, Yes, I see the light. That's why he believes that they were on a mission from God. Because this light shining upon him at this uh, particular moment after they had visited the nun who told them about the orphanage needing $5,000 as soon as humanly possible. That is the calling, so to speak, of the Blues Brothers to their mission. Here we have not just... um, a subjective experience by Jesus as being called to his mission, but we have an experience that is also verified by John the baptizer about this experience. It's not just something Jesus felt because he had some strange food that day, but we actually see that there, on the testimony of John the baptizer, the heavens opened, the Spirit descended, and this Jesus has been called to be the Messiah. This is significant. Jesus promises that as the Father sent him into the world, so he sends us into the world in John 17. And then later, again, it's repeated in John 19 after his resurrection. We are to follow Jesus because, well, he came for us and bids us to follow, and then as a result, we've been sent. We also are engaging in his mission. And so our life should shift, just as Jesus' life shifts. Remember, up until this point, he's a carpenter. He's in Nazareth. He's in the family business. All of that changes for Jesus as he hits probably 30 years old. He's baptized by John The Spirit descends upon him, and now he becomes a rabbi. We'll see as we go through the Gospel of Mark that there's some people who leave their nets, who leave their tax booth, but not all of Jesus' disciples are called to do that, but they are called to leave sin. They are called to completely reimagine their lives. So that while they might remain a fisherman, now they fish for a different reason. Now they see that their fishing is not just about putting food on my table, but it's putting food on other people's tables for their good and for the glory of God. Life shifts. It's reoriented from our life goals, our goals about a job, our goals about a family, to begin to take on His goals for us about holiness, about service, even as we continue to be engineers and accountants and teachers. So he doesn't call us all into vocational ministry, but he calls us to follow him and serve him in the vocation we have. Doing it very differently. Doing it not for our glory and our good, or simply our good, but also for the good of others and the glory of God. And need I remind some of you children, right now your calling is school. I didn't like school. And I know most of you probably didn't like school. You're not excited about school. But you're there for the glory of God. 
you're called to serve in that way, to learn those things so that you are prepared for greater service for the future. I'll get off my soapbox now. So, one of the other things that takes place, you know, Jesus is not just anointed with the Holy Spirit to begin His earthly ministry, but the Spirit remains upon Him precisely because Jesus is intended to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill His responsibilities as the Messiah. We see this most clearly in the Gospel according to Luke, where He keeps saying, and Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, did this. And Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, did that. But it's here too. The Spirit comes upon Jesus to empower Him, to make Him mighty for the ministry or the mission that He is about to engage upon. In other words, He's not doing anything in and of Himself, but He's doing it all in dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, in doing this, showing us, I believe, what true humanity looks like. Let's go back to that Irenaeus thing. Adam was intended to depend upon God and His power to fulfill the creation mandate. And essentially, what his sin was uh, resulted in, or was driven from, was a sense of wanting to be independent of God as opposed to dependent upon God. And so Jesus is here coming to restore our dependence upon God by removing from us the illusion of our independence. We do not have the power to obey Him. We do not have the desire even to obey Him because every inclination to obey by our spirit is also met by an inclination to disobey by our flesh, our sinful nature. Always hindering. Always seeking to distract. Our sin problem gets in the way of our service every time. And we need the work of the Holy Spirit to move us beyond that sin problem that gets in the way of our service. And so Jesus comes in the power of the Holy Spirit so that He might give us the power of the Holy Spirit. For instance, I kind of traced this out. I've got these things here for you. We, we have all of these places like Isaiah 11, which we read, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. I'll read from 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And I'll stop there. This is the, the ministry of, of God's servant, okay, which is fulfilled in Jesus. We see Jesus actually quoted from this and says it is, this is fulfilled today in your midst. And so the Spirit came upon Jesus precisely because He was anointed to fulfill these particular things, bringing good news to the poor, binding the brokenhearted. Difficult ministries. 
ones that most people shrink back from. But yet, in the power of the Spirit, Jesus goes forward and does these things. We see uh, this fulfilled in the life of Jesus beginning here in Mark 1.10 as the Spirit descends upon Him. But we see that when Jesus ascends, He sends from heaven this Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. The Spirit is given as a gift to all of God's people so that they might fulfill the mission that He has given them because it's a difficult mission and they need help. And Jesus sends help in the power of the Spirit. We see places like Romans 8-9. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. We see the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 12-13. If you're a Christian, you are being led by the Spirit because you have been baptized in the Spirit. There's no two classes of Christianity. Okay, One, if you're a Christian, you have been given God's Holy Spirit and you've been given that Spirit in part to empower you to the mission that He calls you as His child. And so if you follow Jesus, He gives you this Spirit to empower you for that mission. And so the Spirit descends to make mighty for mission. See, but it's not simply about what John sees, but it's also what he and Jesus heard that matters. And so what we see is in addition to the eyes, the ears are taken into account as the heavens are rent and heaven spills out and breaks loose. John and Jesus hear a voice from heaven. The Father is going to make a declaration that is heard by at least John and Jesus, but this declaration pertains to Jesus alone. You are... My beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. That strikes me as odd. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. Well, I guess, I mean, he'd been a carpenter. But, I mean, he hadn't done any ministry yet. He's quit his job <laughs> up, in, up in Nazareth. And yet God is saying, I am well pleased with you. We're intended to hear the echoes of a few things within this incredible statement that the Father makes toward the Son. One of them is an echo of Psalm 2, which we read to begin our service. We're meant to hear that this Jesus who is being baptized in the Jordan River in the middle of nowhere. He is the son of David who reigns as king who has been adopted by God. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. This is the anointed that God establishes upon His holy hill. This guy in the wilderness from Nazareth, of all places. This is not glorious from an earthly perspective. I mean, this is not like Octavian. He had the advantages 
Uh, he was not the son of a carpenter. He was adopted by Julius Caesar himself. He was moving in with all of the, the high-powered people of Rome uh, when his adopted father was assassinated. Uh, that didn't stop Octavian. He and Antony gathered together and defeated those who assassinated Julius. And then eventually uh, the splitting of the kingdom wouldn't work, as you might imagine. And so he and Antony had to go to war. And it is because he defeated Antony and Cleopatra uh, that then he was able to take the title Augustus Caesar. A changing of his name, the installation into office as the emperor of the Holy Rome, well, at that point, Roman Empire. Jesus has no incredible story that we can see this far in Mark, if we're limiting ourselves to Mark. Okay. He, is, he kind of just appears almost out of nowhere, except for the fact that we see he's from Nazareth. There's no lineage that's impressive There's no great victory that has been won. And yet God says, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. We do see that this Jesus who will be ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty also takes us with him. If we believe in him, if we're united to Jesus by faith, as we see in Ephesians 2, we're already, we are currently seated with him in the heavenly places, meaning that we rule with him. Such is the reality of union with Christ. Get a little bit more to that next week when we get to Romans 6 for Resurrection Day. If we hear an echo of Psalm 2, we should also hear an echo of Genesis 22. Because uh, there we see that Isaac is called the son you, referring to Abraham, love. The beloved son. We're intended to hear this little bit. Uh, that Jesus will be sacrificed as Isaac was sacrificed. But instead of uh, God calling an end to the sacrifice of Isaac before it's too late, as we see in this rendition by Rembrandt, this one's going all the way. Because this son is going to be the sin-bearer. This son is not going to be spared so that he might deliver us all. But not only that, as we see from Galatians 3, that we in Christ are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. Even doesn't matter whether we're Jew or Gentile, we are Abraham's offspring through Jesus. Because he became the son of Abraham in the sense of the sin bearer that is spoken of in Genesis 22. We should also hear an echo of Exodus 4 and Hosea 11. Exodus 4 notes that you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Which brings us into the Passover. Hosea 11 reflects upon this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so we see the adoption of Israel as the son of God. And we are intended to hear in this comment by the Father the fact that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true Son of God that is found here in the desert at the baptism at the hands of John. We hear as well an echo of Psalm 41, sorry, 42, this servant who is well thought of before he's done anything. He is well thought of or well-pleasing to the Father. In other words, unlike Octavian, who accomplished great feats in order to gain a new title and become emperor, Jesus has the title before he's done anything, and he receives it at the beginning of his mission. Not as a result of a completed mission. We see something of the graciousness that is involved here. His identity is the basis of, the, of this mission. Meaning he gets this identity and therefore gets the mission. His identity doesn't rest on his success as it did for Octavian. Probably not as clear in your heads as it is mine. (laughs) But what we see here, I I think we should see here anyway, is as we follow Christ, as we trust in Christ, we also receive a new identity, right? It's like Jesus's in that it is given to us by grace. It's not because we've overcome. It's not because uh, we've got it all together. Uh, it's, It's in spite of the fact that we don't have it all together. And this new identity is given to us freely along with the mission that we're called to partake of, this mission of service. And so the Father, just as He declares this about Jesus, He accepts us as beloved, he accepts us as well-pleasing when we're united to Jesus the Son. We receive grace, we receive a gracious status, not a merited status. Yesterday was not a good day, and this will make sense in a moment. I had to repair a toilet. I've done this before. It's not like this is something beyond me. It's not a difficult task. And yet this rather simple task has already taken up four hours of my life. I have failed in this rather simple task thus far because every time I think I've completed the task, I still have a leak. 
And it drives me crazy. I failed. Not only have I failed, but as I rage against the toilet, <laughs> and the lousy plumber who installed it using the wrong parts, I've sinned. So not only am I a failure, but I've also sinned. Am I less loved by God? Am I less pleasing to God? And we're tempted to say yes. I know I'm tempted to say yes when I'm having the really bad day and can't fix the toilet. How can God love me and I can't even fix the toilet? How am I pleasing to God when I want to destroy the toilet? Except I don't because I don't want to spend more money. But this is where we live. These, these are the places we live. Fill in your own blank. Does God still love me if there's a humongous pile of clean clothes on the bed that has not been put away? <laughs> Maybe I should back it up a step. <laughs> is God well pleased with me when there is a humongous pile of clothes that need to be washed? Or if dinner is late. Or if dinner doesn't even happen. Hunt for yourselves, scavengers. <laughs> That's where we live. One day she'll understand. It'll be okay. Yes, he loves me. Yes, I'm well pleasing to him because it rests upon Jesus, not me. It is my identity in Jesus Christ not my personal performance. Now, when I'm having that really bad day where I feel like I can't do anything right, I don't believe that. I struggle to believe that. It is a matter of faith. It is not something that comes easy to us. It is a faith that, in a sense, is fought for. I have to remember these things. I have to call them back to mind. And the only reason uh, that I am well-pleasing in His sight, the only reason that I am beloved by Him, is because Jesus, going back to the front, has, in fact, identified Himself with sinners like me and borne my failure and my sin. And He gives me His Spirit so that I don't fall into despair over the perpetually leaky toilet. Or my self-crucifixion because I've failed again. Understand. 
This is where the gospel hits the road, brothers and sisters. If Jesus is not His beloved Son with whom He is well pleased, then you can't be either. But He is. And you can be too. That's good news. Because it's not based on how hard you've worked and it's not based on how well you've performed. It's based on how Jesus did it all. And so Messiah identified with sinners. He, de- he depended upon the Spirit and He was beloved by the Father. And so are we who follow Him. Jesus' baptism is the beginning of His earthly ministry. There's no earthly pomp and circumstance here, but a baptism in the wilderness in which He is identified with sinners. But there was heavenly pomp and circumstance. As the Spirit descends upon Jesus to make Him mighty for ministry, as the Father expresses His love and His pleasure toward Jesus, in Jesus, or in union with Jesus, we are also sent on mission. We are also made mighty through the Holy Spirit for that mission. We're also loved and well-pleasing to the Father. And so, are you trying to gain His love? Are you floundering, perhaps, in sin and failure? Or are you living by faith in God's Son and God's Word? That's where this leaves us. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank You for the baptism of Jesus. And we thank You that You showed up in a way that You don't visibly, audibly show up at our baptisms because You'd probably scare us to death. But um, you showed up because Jesus needed to hear that as a fully human person. And so that we would know this about Jesus. So we could believe this about Jesus. And it can make a difference about us and how we interact with our world and our circumstances. And so... Help us to believe this. Because some days it ain't easy. We ask this in His name. Amen.